this is the third in a three-part series called Bible Roads. And uh, in each message of this series, we're looking at a road that Jesus walked for us, right? There are, there are many roads in the Bible. There are also many roads in life. But in this series, we're looking at three roads that Jesus walked specifically to do something for us. So um, two weeks ago, we looked at the road to the wilderness that Jesus walked to show us how to deal with temptation. And last week, we looked at the lonely road to Jerusalem that Jesus walked courageously for us. And so this morning's message is entitled, The Road to the Cross and Beyond. And it's really a continuation of the road to Jerusalem. And uh, so last week we followed Jesus from the north side of the Sea of Galilee all the way down along the Jordan River to Jericho, through the Judean wilderness, and up to the Mount of Olives. And finally, we saw him as he was entering Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The crowds are excited and they proclaim him to be the Messiah. And at the same time, Jesus is weeping over the spiritual condition of those that he loves. And so remember last week we said it was kind of a big picture sermon. Well, this week's going to be kind of the same thing. It's a, it's a big picture sermon where we kind of step back and uh, just appreciate the awesomeness of what God is doing. And so as we pick up the story this morning, it's the beginning of what we call Passion Week. And Jesus, having entered Jerusalem, has committed himself to following this road to the end. Bethany was the last exit on the toll road. But now, having fulfilled the prophecies, having ridden in triumphantly on a donkey, Jesus has committed himself to a road that will lead inevitably to the cross. The week ahead would be filled with a whirlwind of activity. Thousands of people have come from all over Israel to celebrate the Passover. But what they don't know is that this will be a Passover like no other Passover. This will be a Passover that changed the history of the world. Now, the chief priests, for their part, they had already decided that Jesus needed to die. But they were desperate to make sure that that didn't happen during the Passover week because they were afraid that people would riot. However, we're going to see that as the week progressed, they weren't as in control of events as they thought they were. And then when you look at Jesus, well, Jesus is absolutely amazing this week. He's breathtaking this week. Jesus would teach and minister to the people all week long. And that's amazing because the chief priests wanted him dead. And Jesus knew that the chief priests wanted him dead. And for most of us, you know, how many of you, if you knew, knew that some powerful people had put a hit out on you, some powerful people wanted you gone and out of the way, what would you do? You know, I know if it was me, I'd go into hiding, right? I mean, you didn't make yourself scarce, right? But look what Jesus does. He starts out the week, Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. This is the first day after he, he rode in triumphantly. This is Monday morning. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So Jesus goes to the most conspicuous place in the city. He goes to where the most people will see him. He goes to where the authorities are hanging out. He goes to the temple. And then he starts doing the most conspicuous thing possible. He's drawing attention to himself. And he's doing it in a way that would infuriate the priests. Because in taking control of what was happening at the temple... Jesus was taking control of what those authorities thought that they controlled. Right? Now, the truth of the matter is, 
I mean, Jesus is the Son of God. This temple is really there. It's all about him to begin with, right? And he has uh, entire right to do what he will in this temple. But the authorities thought that they had the right to that. And then in calling it a den of robbers, he's not only calling those selling products thieves and robbers, it's implied that those who allowed this, these chief priests, were, had created this den of robbers. And so Jesus, all week long, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Jesus teaches and ministers publicly to the people. He's, he's out in front of everybody. He's where everyone can see him. He, do, he does nothing in secret. And, and now everything that should be happening at the temple is happening at the temple. The blind and the lame are coming to him and, and being healed. Many people are being healed. Children are coming around and singing songs of praise. And all week long, the authorities, they come and, and, and they want to trip Jesus up and they're, they're questioning him. But every time they do, they leave with their tail between their legs embarrassed. And, and all week long, Jesus teaches them in parables. And, uh, you know, we don't have time to go through each one this morning and examine each one. But if you look at them all, you'll see that all of the parables and much of the teaching that Jesus gave during this week is focused on the kingdom of God and how to enter the kingdom of God, and the importance of not missing the kingdom of God. And so as you look at what's motivating Jesus all week long, you can't help but come away with this idea that Jesus is really, really concerned with. He really, really wants people to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't want anybody to miss the kingdom of God, and he's aware that it's a real possibility that people could miss the kingdom of God. And he doesn't want anyone to miss it. The stakes are huge because this is not just about some earthly kingdom and who will rule it. It's just not some, about some local temple and the rules that are surrounding it. But this is about eternity and where you will spend it. This week is about the destiny of the human race. And so all week long, Jesus ministers and heals and he teaches uh, and deals with all the opposition. And he keeps walking along this road to the cross. And it seems like every action he takes, every healing, every teaching he gives is this deliberate step towards the cross. It moves him that much closer to the cross. And so on Thursday evening, we come to the Last Supper. Jesus has poured himself out for people. He's ministered very publicly all week long. Uh, and now for the Passover celebration, he wants to have uh, a very quiet celebration with just those who are closest to him, just the 12 disciples. And, uh, and as we look at all of the things that happened that night, we see something of the amazing heart of Jesus. He takes time to be with them. He teaches them. He encourages them. He comforts them. And even though he's talking about some difficult things and their hearts are troubled, He's encouraging them. He tells them that in the end, it's all going to be all right. And you can read about all the details of that in, in John, uh, John's gospel. He spends about five chapters detailing everything that Jesus said and did at the Last Supper. And in the middle of all of this, they're celebrating the Passover meal together. And there's something significant that I, I want you to see. See, the Passover meal had several important elements to it. There was a sacrificial lamb, there was a shared bread, there were, there were several cups that were shared together, and all of these things were to remind them of their deliverance from Egypt. It was to remind them of how God delivered them from slavery, how when God judged the firstborn of Egypt, he passed over them and delivered them from judgment. 
So from the time of Moses, this was the big defining moment in their history. This was the big defining uh, and redeeming moment in their history that they look back to. And so during the course of this meal, Jesus says something absolutely astounding. And I don't want you to miss it. He said this. He says, when he had given thanks, he broke it, broke the bread, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. This is amazing. You know, sometimes we read this and we, we read the scripture during communion and it can become easy to take it for granted. But if you were there that first time and you're thinking that all of this Passover is about uh, the deliverance from Egypt and Jesus says this, this is astounding. First, uh, see two things, two phrases. The first is this, do this in remembrance of me. He's saying that all of these elements point to him, that the Passover itself and the deliverance from Egypt points to Jesus and what he is about to do on the cross. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's saying that this broken bread that you're sharing represents his body, which is broken for you. And the cup that, that they're pouring out together represents his blood that will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. All of history has been leading to this point, from Adam to Abraham, from slavery in Egypt to the crossing of the Red Sea, from the conquest of Canaan, all the way through to David and all the prophets, from the exile to the return and the rebuilding of the temple, all of it has been driving towards this point. The cross is a dividing line in history, and it points to Jesus. This do in remembrance of me. So before their big redemptive moment in history was that Passover, that deliverance from Egypt. And so all of Israel looked back to that point. Now Jesus is saying that now the entire world will look back to this point as the redeeming point in history for the entire world. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the second phrase I want you to see here is for you. Look at the words, for you. Those two little words are awesome. I mean, no other king says things like this. Every other king expects his servants to serve him. Every other king expects his subjects to die for him. But not this king. This king comes as a servant of his people. This king comes willing to die for his people. It's for you. And Jesus is telling the disciples, everything you're about to see, everything that's going to happen in the next 24 hours, it's for you. And Jesus is telling the world, everything that's about to happen, it's for everyone. And so as we continue on seeing Jesus on this road to the cross and beyond, I believe that Jesus wants you to have this idea that everything we're about to see, it's for you. So let's continue together along this road uh, with Jesus. The next stop along this road to the cross is a place called Gethsemane. Mark says it this way. He says, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. 
Stay here and keep watch. So Jesus comes here to pray. And it says that he begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. He's aware of what is about to happen, and it's troubling him. And you know what? This fact makes some people uncomfortable. Right? Some people get uncomfortable with this idea that, that Jesus is troubled here, because after all, you know, isn't he the son of God? Isn't he this awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing Jesus, son of God, and nothing really phases him, right? And some people get uncomfortable with that and try to spiritualize the whole thing. But for me, um, this is a comforting passage. Yes, he is the son of God. He is 100% God, but he's also 100% human. And he experienced this trial as a human. And you know what that tells me? There is no trial that I can go through. There is no trial that you can go through where you can say, Jesus just doesn't understand how hard this is. Jesus faced this trial as a human, and it says he was troubled. You know, and I, and I think that two things troubled him. And, and the first is obvious, right? I mean, he knew what was coming the next day. He knew the beatings would be painful. He, he knew that the crucifixion would be painful. He knew he was about to die. But I think there was another thing that was troubling him as well. Because, you see, Jesus knew that on the cross, the sin of the entire world would be placed on him. And the Bible says that he would become sin for us. The sinless son of God, the one who had never known sin, was to suddenly become sin for us, and it troubled him. And he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so he prays, and it looks like he prays most of the night long. Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Father, if it's possible, if there's any other way to save humanity, let's do it. And he prayed several hours into the night, and, and, and it was intense. You know, sometimes you read uh, prayers in the Bible, and uh, you think, you know, it's just uh, you know, some form prayer or something like that. This was not a now I lay me down to sleep type of prayer, right? This was intense. It was so intense that it says that at one point an angel came to strengthen him. And then after that, it says that being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. So it got even more intense. And, the, and then eventually it says that his sweat became like great drops of blood that, that fell on the ground. And that means capillaries were bursting uh, in his veins and mixing with his sweat and falling to the ground. Jesus is walking to Gethsemane for you, and it's intense. And he's doing it because he loves you. It's for you. And then, so sometime in the middle of the night, after all of this prayer, it says that Judas shows up, and he has a detachment of temple guards with him, and they're armed with storms and clubs, and Ju Judas comes up to Jesus and says, Rabbi, like he's so glad to see him. And he comes up and kisses him on the cheek. And so the sinless son of God, the one who loves sinners, the one whose heart was filled with such amazing unfathomable love for humanity is betrayed with a fake act of love. You know, and at first, his disciples, they want to defend him. They take out their swords. Peter strikes the servant of the high priest, but Jesus stops them because he's walking this road for them, and he doesn't let them get in the way. And the disciples, being confused, they all flee. They run away. They desert him, and he's left alone. And Jesus continues to walk this road to the cross for us alone. The next place this road would lead him was to the house of Caiaphas, 
the high priest. Here he would undergo his first trial. All the chief priests and the elders in the Sanhedrin, they're assembled. The high priest begins to question Jesus about his disciples and his teaching as though it had been done in secret. And, and Jesus responds by saying that he had done nothing in secret, that all of his teaching and ministry was really a part of the public record. And he's saying, everything I taught, you have heard for yourselves. There's nothing secret. There's no hidden agenda. And it says that one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. And so the trials of Jesus begin with man slapping God in the face, with the sinner striking the Savior, with the rebellious reviling the Redeemer. And they thought, and they brought false witnesses who told lies about him. And even then, they couldn't get their story straight. And finally, the high priest just asked him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus just simply answers, I am. Uh, you know, and you think they could have just started with that, right? <coughs> I mean, it would have saved a lot of time, right? Uh, the idea is this. Uh, it seems like they were thinking, you know, of course, Jesus is going to try to wiggle out of this. Jesus is going to try to talk his way out of this and, and maneuver his way. So we've got to build a case, and they bring all of these false witnesses, and they, they can't even agree with each other. And it looks like, so finally, the, the high priest is just getting exasperated and says, well, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, oh, yes, I am. Jesus, he's not trying to get out of it. He's not trying to hide it. He's committed to walking this road to the cross. And so the high priest tears his robes and accuses Jesus of blasphemy. And the, it says that they all condemned him as worthy of death. Man's first judgment of God is that he should die. And isn't that the judgment of the unredeemed heart, even today? That God should die. Isn't that the judgment of the rebellious heart today? That God should die. We should get rid of him. This was their first judgment of the Son of God. He should die. And it says that they began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy, who hit you? And so here's the picture. Right now we're looking at a bunch of middle-aged men to old men hitting Jesus and beating them with their fists. But then it says that the guards took him and beat him. Now the temple guards. And what this would have been was an official lashing uh, sentenced on him. Um, this would have been what was known as the 49 lashes. The Jews had a law that when someone was sentenced to lashing, you could only administer up to 49 lashes. Now, uh, boy, that's really, really uh, merciful, isn't it? Just 49. Jesus took a beating here. And somewhere along the way, somewhere during all of the questioning and listening to lies and being spat upon and, and hit and beaten, Jesus hears something else happening in the courtyard below because, you see, Peter's there. He somehow mustered the courage to follow along at a distance and disguise himself and, and gain entry into the courtyard. But a servant girl has recognized him and says, uh, you also were with Jesus. And, and Peter denied it, saying, oh, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. But then a second time, she brought some mothers and said, you know, uh, this fellow's one of, one of them. And again, Peter denied it. But a third time, it says they came to him and they said, you know, you sound like a Galilean. You have that Galilean accent. Surely you are one of his followers. And it says that this time, Peter began to call down curses and he swore at them. He says, I don't know this man you're talking about. And so in the midst of all of the accusations and the spitting and the fists and the beatings and Jesus, the one who willingly left heaven to become one of us, to identify with us, to be our friend. 
Here's one of his closest friends cursing and angrily crying out, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And in that moment, Jesus looked at Peter and I got it. Can you imagine now how that would feel for Jesus? I mean, if you were in your greatest hour of need and all your friends deserted you and the one that was left denied even knowing who you were. Jesus walked through Gethsemane for us. Jesus walked through the trial at the high priest's residence for us. And so the first trial comes to an end, and the next, the road to the cross would take Jesus before Pilate. It says that early in the morning, the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, the Roman governor. The road that Jesus traveled to the cross would now lead through the judgment hall of the Roman governor. This is the first of two trials before Pilate. And they're the leaders. They're accusing Jesus, but their accusations now change. Because before it was just about him, his claim to be the Messiah. But now before uh, Pilate, uh, they're, they're saying that he's an enemy of Rome, that he's a threat to Caesar. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, which was a lie. And Pilate sees right through it. He rather quickly announces to them, you know, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And even the godless could see that this man was innocent. But the chief priest pressed him, saying that, you know, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And uh, now this was a misstep on their part because Pilate was looking to get out of this. And uh, when they mentioned he's from Galilee, well, that meant that he's in Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate packs him up and sends him off to Herod. So now they march through the city over to Herod, and the road to the cross goes through Herod's palace. And so now here, Jesus is standing before the powerful King Herod. This is the same King Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And Herod now peppers him with questions. Herod wants him to perform some miracle or something, uh, put on some show, and Jesus would have none of it, didn't, didn't give him anything. So then Herod and the soldiers begin to ridicule and mock him. The creation is mocking the creator. And finally, when they'd had their fun, they send him back to Pilate. And once more, Jesus walks bound through Jerusalem back to Pilate. And so keep in mind that by now, Jesus has been up all night. He spent half the night praying in anguish. He spent the other half of the night alternately answering false charges and a, a mock trial and being beaten and spit upon. Then he was bound and brought to Pilate. Then they made him take another trip through Jerusalem to Herod's palace. Then he's, he's mocked and ridiculed. Then they send him through another trip uh, back uh, through Jerusalem back to Pilate. And he probably hasn't had anything to eat, anything to drink. And this has been the better part of the day. It's about to get worse. And all this he's done for us because he loves us. It's for you because he loves you. And so the road to the cross goes back to Pilate's judgment hall. Still, they're demanding that Jesus be crucified, and, and, and Pilate could see through their motivations, and he tries a number of times to release Jesus, but the leaders stirred up the crowd, demanding Jesus' execution. And they call for the release of Barabbas instead. They preferred a criminal and a murderer over the sinless Son of God. And so Pilate finally consents, and it says that Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, when it says he had him flogged, you, you must understand that this was a horrendous beating. This was the kind of beating that would make the toughest of men turn their face away because it's difficult to look at. They placed a crown of thorns on his head and struck him and mocked him, and then they would have tied his hands to a short post. Now, remember we said the Jews had a law that said you could only whip a man 49 times, but the Romans had 
no such law. All they had was one rule, and that was that if a man was sentenced to be crucified, you couldn't kill him at the flogging. And so they became experts in inflicting the maximum amount of pain just short of death. And they used what was called the cat of nine tails, which was a short whip with, with many short leather straps, uh, but at the end of each one were rocks and other sharp things that they had embedded in them that were designed to rip flesh open. So as they beat Jesus, they were ripping the flesh from his back and from his legs. All of this he did for us, his body given for us. And by the time they were through, the flesh of Jesus' back would have been torn open, likely hanging in ribbons. He had been beaten so badly that the Bible says that he was barely recognizable as a man. And he did it for you. He did it for me. And he didn't have to. When Jesus was arrested, his disciples wanted to defend him. But Jesus said, do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? All Jesus had to do was speak one word and tens of thousands of angels would have shown up and put a stop to all of this. With one word, Jesus could have ended all of this. And yet, he continues down this road to the cross. He continues walking this road because he loves people. He's thinking about people. He's thinking about you. He's, he wants people to have the opportunity to spend eternity in the kingdom of God with him. So when they finally tired of beating and mocking him, they would have then placed a heavy wooden crossbeam across his shoulders and, and tied his forearms to it. And the, then they made Jesus carry his own cross uh, through Jerusalem out towards the place of execution. And then uh, at one point it says that he stumbled and fell and he couldn't carry the cross, so they forced a passerby uh, to carry it for him. And they finally come to the place of execution, a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. This was a hill outside Jerusalem. It was along a main road into Jerusalem where you would have seen a gallows there, already there where they executed people. And there they stripped him in his remaining, from his remaining clothes and they drove five-inch nails through his wrists. <coughs> and next they would have lifted the crossbeam and attached it to the gallows and then placing one foot over the other, they drove another five-inch spike through his feet. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the medical things that, that would have happened um, and that people would have experienced uh, when they were crucified, but it was a horrible, agonizing death. One of the most cruel forms of human punishment that humanity has ever devised to inflict on anyone. It was about 9 o'clock when Jesus was crucified, and it says those nearby kept heaping insults on him. Even the criminals being executed with him heaped insults on him. And after about three hours at noon, darkness came over the whole land. Now, there are seven statements that the Bible says Jesus made from the cross. Today, I want to focus on just two. It says at three in the afternoon, Jesus spent on the cross for six hours. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why are you, have you forsaken me? Now, some of those present mistakenly thought that he was calling Elijah to save him, but this is likely the moment that the sin of the world is being placed on Jesus. This is the moment when Jesus becomes sin for us. Every sin that's ever been committed, every selfish act, from the murder of Abel to the, the, every mass killing that every dictator has ever committed, every immoral act, every prideful motivation, every sin that was ever committed is placed on Jesus in this moment. Jesus has become 
the sacrificial lamb. He is in this moment the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Shortly after this, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It is finished! Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with that, he breathed his last and died. Everything Jesus had set out to do had been accomplished. Nothing was left undone. He taught the people. He healed the people. He had preached good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind. The people walking in darkness had seen a great light. He walked the road to the wilderness and overcame temptation. He walked the road to Jerusalem with courage and steadfastness. Now he had walked the road to the cross. He had paid for the sins of mankind. And in an affirmation that Jesus had, in fact, successfully paid for the sin of mankind, the Heavenly Father reached down from heaven and tore the massive curtain in the temple in two from top to bottom, indicating that the way into the Holy of Holies is now open. The way into the presence of God is now made open. And so Jesus completed the road to the cross. But this road wouldn't end there. After Jesus died, it says they took his body down and laid it in a borrowed tomb. Then the chief priest prevailed upon Pilate to set a detachment of Roman guards uh, to, to guard the tomb so that no one would steal his body. And so, so there Jesus lay. The rest of the day Friday, and there Jesus lay all day Saturday and overnight into Sunday. Now, for most people, death is the end of the road, but not for Jesus. For you see, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to the tomb, and there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. 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 That's something to be excited about. You know what? That's something to be excited about, not just on Resurrection Sunday. That's something to be excited about every day of the year. Because he is the risen Christ. He is alive again. He is no longer in the grave, but he is risen. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has poured out the Holy Spirit on those who love him. Hallelujah. And he's made a relationship possible with the Heavenly Father. Hallelujah. That is something to rejoice at every day of the year. Now, someone might say, well, what's all the fuss, Pastor Paul? Why the excitement? Why the big deal? What does it mean? Well, let me say it this way, in the words of this poem. If Jesus be dead in the grip of a tomb, there'd be nothing for us but fear and doom. Life would be sad with no way to cope. Death would reign all without any hope. If Jesus be dead in the grip of a tomb, would have no future, only dark and gloom. No life after death, no eternity in sight, no hope, no joy, 
no Savior, no life. But thanks be to God, Jesus rose to life. The debt all paid, though sin was rife. His body lay in the tomb three days. Then up from the grave, his life was raised. Yes, thanks be to God, Jesus rose to life. He conquered death, all sin and strife. To those who believe from death set free with hope, with joy, their Savior to see. Hallelujah. 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 <coughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now in a minute, we're going to celebrate communion together. And uh, I'm going to ask, go ahead, God bless you all. If you could just be seated for a moment, if you can. I'm glad this is the Pentecostal church. I love all my other brothers of other persuasions. God bless them, but, you know, I'm glad that this is the Pentecostal church where we can uh, respond, right? Respond to God with everything that we are. Amen? So let me ask you, before we have salvation, you know, I'd like you to bow your heads with me for a moment so I can pray for you and with you. And I want to give you a, an opportunity this morning to respond to God in faith. Now, many of you, some of you might say to me this morning, you know, Pastor Paul, you know, I'm a Christian, and I've been serving God, and, you know, I've been walking with Jesus, but this morning, you know, in the light of everything I've heard from the Word, I want to take a moment to redeclare my faith in Him. I want to redeclare my faith in Jesus. If that's you, can I see your hand this morning? All over, yes, all over this place. Saying, yeah, I'm just redeclaring, recommitting my faith to the Lord Jesus. Thank you for those hands. You can go ahead and put them down. Now, some of you this morning might say, you know, Pastor Paul, you know, I profess to be a Christian, a Christ follower, but if I'm honest with myself, I've really been kind of far away from God. You know, I haven't really been, been serving him that closely. You know, I haven't been really loving him. You know, other things have gotten in the way, and I've kind of been following my own agenda, really not really following Christ closely. But you'd say this morning, Pastor Paul, in response to the word, in response to everything that Jesus uh, has done for me, I want to change all that. I want to get back to following Jesus closely. I want to get back to loving him with all of my heart and walking with him with no one looking around right now. You'd say, with the uplifted hand, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. You know, thank you for that hand and that hand and that hand and that hand. Thank you for that and that. Amen. God sees those hands. Amen. Amen. Anyone else before we pray this morning? Amen. God bless you for that. He loves you so much. And then lastly, this morning, some of you might say, maybe you've come in here and you, you know, you've never really received Christ as Lord before. You know, you've never really had a relationship uh, with him that's based on grace. And you never maybe understood quite what Jesus was doing on the cross. And uh, uh, you never really um, experienced the newness of life in him. But this morning, it's on your heart to say, you know, Pastor Paul, I believe what Jesus did for me. I see the road he walked for me, and I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sin on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead for me, and you, maybe for the first time, you'd like to say by raising your hand, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. Pray for me. I want to place my faith in Christ. I want a relationship with this risen, risen Savior. And with everyone's head bowed, no one looking around, you'd raise your hand and say, yeah, Pastor Paul, that's me. Pray for me. Yeah, thank you for that hand. Is there anyone else? You'd say, yeah, Pastor Paul, it's me. No one's looking around. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you in any way. Amen. Anyone else that we can pray for? Amen, amen, amen. Amen. Praise the name of the Lord. Thank you for that hand. God bless you so much. Amen. God loves you so much. He wants you to be in heaven with him. He wants you to spend eternity in the kingdom of God. And he paid all of that price. He walked that road for you. Anyone else before we pray?
All right. Thank you for that hand. God sees that hand back there. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. God loves you so much. He has an amazing kind of love for you. So what we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to lead you all in prayer. And I would like all of you to pray this prayer with me. And as you do, it's not some type of magic prayer or formula, but as you believe these things in your heart, God is going to do exactly what you ask him to do. It's a prayer of faith to receive Christ as Lord. Would you do that with me? Everyone praying after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today a sinner. I confess I can't save myself. I can't earn your forgiveness. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me to pay for my sins. And I believe that Jesus rose from the dead to grant me eternal life. Now, Jesus, please be my Lord. Be my Savior. Come into my life. Come into my heart. Make everything new. Help me live for you all the days of my life. Pour your grace and your mercy on my heart. In the name of Jesus, amen. Friend, can I tell you, if you've done that for the first time, God has done exactly what you asked him to do. The Bible says that you've passed from death to life, that when you're in Christ, everything becomes new. You're a new creation. If that was the first time, or, or if maybe you were away from Christ and you're coming back, everything becomes new. You're a new creation in Christ. And so look for him from here on to be, to be talking to you, to be doing things in your, in your heart and in your life. I encourage you to spend some time in prayer every single day. He wants to hear from you. Just talk to him, even if it's for five minutes that you start. And then spend some time in the Word of God. Get a Bible. If you don't have one, come see me. Come see Pastor Mark, one of the other pastors. We'll get you a Bible in today's English. And, uh, and you're going to find as you read it that all of a sudden God is speaking to you in ways you never imagined. It's going to be awesome and wonderful. And uh, if you don't have a body of believers, the body of Christ is awesome. Being around other believers uh, who, who love Jesus the way you do helps you grow. And I encourage you to be part of the body of Christ in worship and in small groups and in other opportunities like that. God bless you so much. Amen. Can we give Jesus one more great big praise offering? He's awesome. He's awesome. He's awesome. <coughs>